0: The Buddha taught the path of practice to be developed to reach the end of suffering, the end of stress, the end of that which is unsatisfactory. And the essence of the path of practice is encoded in the fourth noble truth which is the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings. There's the training in sila or morality that we're doing here by taking the precepts and it is essentially um, being mindful of intention before speaking and acting in such a way that you catch any defilement that is influencing the intention and you don't act on it. And when you don't act out the defilements by speaking or acting, it allows the mind to be at ease with itself and more at ease with others because we're not speaking and acting in a way that causes uh, others harm. But even if we do exercise careful consideration in our relationships, our interior mindscape can be quite torturous, can be quite a mess, can be really uh, struggling and, and suffering. And so the second uh, training of the Eightfold Path is to purify the mind of the defilements, at least temporarily. And this is through the development of samadhi, or concentration only. And through practices like attention to the breath at the nostrils, anapana. Or other concentration practices we are able to temporarily though for sustained periods of time keep the hindrances at bay because the attention and mindfulness is going to the chosen object repeatedly and the force or the stream of that momentum in the mind keeps out the defilements. But as soon as one stops that kind of practice, gradually the purity of the mind uh, dissolves. And all of the latent defilements in the mind have a field day. They come back. (laughs) So the Buddha said, hmm. Not good enough yet. Uh, We need something a little more subtle, a little more powerful to address those latent mind bombs. And so he taught wisdom practice, which purifies our understanding. Not just purifying our speech and behavior intentions, not just purifying our mind of the defilements, but purifying our understanding. This is a much subtler practice and it has a more enduring effect. And essentially, the development of wisdom is through the practice of vipassana or insight. Vipassana knowledge or the understanding called vipassana is the understanding that purifies the mind, purifies our understanding of latent defilements, defilements that might arise if given an opportunity. Vipassana knowledge is realizing the th- what are called the three universal characteristics. The first is a Nietzsche, which is impermanence. The second is dukkha, which is pain or unsatisfactoriness. And the third is the anatta characteristic, which refers to the uh, conditionality or the impersonality of phenomena. Now, when we hear the word impermanence, do you know things are impermanent? We know things are impermanent. We know things are impermanent up here in our head conceptually intellectually we can think it out and and agree things are impermanent but in our heart it's hard to live moment to moment with the fact that things are impermanent because we find ourselves holding on holding on to ideas about ourselves holding on to plans holding on to old relationships that have dissolved or just Structuring our life so as to avoid unexpected change. So it takes Vipassana practice to rid the mind understanding of, or belief in, or tendency to concretize anything people, events, relationships, all that is impermanent. Dukkha is pain, unsatisfactoriness, the uh, oppressiveness, the instability of conditions. Do you know there's pain in life? Yeah. Just sit still for an hour, you know there's pain. You know, or, or if, if the body's not dramatic enough for you, just watch your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, is there some suffering in the mind? Yeah, okay, it's pretty obvious. We know that. We know how to distract ourselves so that we avoid it too. But the Buddha said, that's not really good enough. We need to correct our understanding of how things are, build into our understanding the recognition, the acknowledgement, the acceptance of the fact that things, conditional things just are not satisfactory. okay we don't even want to try that one we don't even want to believe that one and yet that's what's required in the practice of Vipassana to come to that understanding. The third insight or Vipassana knowledge is as I mentioned the anatta characteristic. Sometimes it's called the um, not-self or the the impersonality, the characteristic of impersonality, it's often misunderstood. So tonight I want to speak about the understanding, the vipassana or insight understanding of the anatta characteristic. Because it is a teaching unique to the Buddha and It is subtle, yet indispensable, if we are interested in freeing the mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. Because to properly understand the anatta characteristic, the not-self characteristic, will incline the mind away from the grasping that leads to suffering. Now, let me just step back and say, in our relative uh, relationship world of families, work, school, uh, community, we need a sense of self. We need a very clear, uh, bounded, uh, consistent sense of self so that we recognize ourselves and that others recognize ourselves and that we recognize them. If in our childhood and uh, upbringing, we do not kind of get attached to a sense of self, we have more than a difficult time in life. We have a really difficult time. So relatively speaking, in our relationship life, we need a sense of self. And it is responsible of us to uh, create that self, to maintain that self in a consistent way that is recognizable to ourselves and others. Nevertheless, when we hang on to this idea we have of ourself in the face of changing conditions, we suffer. Conventionally speaking, this self, this package of phenomena here, known as myself, is believed to be some enduring thing in here a doer, a master, a director, a controller, the one who feels this, the one who makes decisions, the one who is in control, generally speaking. But as Mahasi Sayadaw, the grandfather of our tradition, says, this conventional idea of self is merely a concept conjured up in the the, the imagination of ordinary people. Just a concept conjured up in the imagination. This delusion causes immense suffering when we are attached to, cling to, or claim ownership of an identity that is me, mine, or who I am. And that isn't getting reaffirmed regularly, consistently, by reality. The Buddha said of this wrong view, the wrong view of self, or the personality view, has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong view, which has most misled and deluded humankind. Now essentially insight into the Anatta characteristic, in the anatta characteristic means that there is the dawning understanding, the realization from experience that the phenomena that arises in this body and mind is not under our immediate control we don't control it it's impersonal or it's conditional it's also not a being meaning it really is pretty insubstantial all of this stuff that happens is just fleeting (laughs) conditional phenomena and the phenomena that arise in this body mind arises and passes away on its own due to its own causes and conditions it is merely the appearance of natural phenomena due to the appropriate causes for our practice here it is important to hear the teaching on the anatta characteristic and to hear the teaching on the right view of the anatta characteristic so that we can support our practice with uh, appropriate theory and that we can practice confidently to develop mindfulness to to see the way to not suffer with this body and mind. Now to understand the Anatta characteristic, it's important to understand the relationship between experience, belief, and suffering. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha wasn't really concerned with a lot of metaphysical uh, questions that a lot of spiritual practice addresses, or spiritual traditions like to address. Because he just cut to the chase and said, does this lead to suffering or to the end of suffering? Other questions that don't deal or answer that can be here or there, anything, doesn't matter. It's does it lead to suffering, does it lead to the end of suffering? His understanding and teaching addresses both the very obvious and the grossest forms of suffering, as well as the exquisitely subtlest forms of suffering. From my experience, I see that the more understanding and the more awareness I have, the subtler my understanding of what suffering is. I mention this teaching of the not self characteristic because, at first glance, it is not obvious. In fact, it's really counterintuitive. It is challenging to grasp the idea cognitively, and it is subtle to realize it experientially. But let me give you an example of what we're up against. We all believe that the Earth spins on its axis and revolves around the sun annually, right? We all believe that. However, that understanding is not from our direct perception. Because we see from our self-centric, earth-bound perspective and perception that the sun rises in the east, traverses the sky, and sets in the west. It travels around us, coming up again in the morning in a similar place that it did the previous morning. If we were to interpret our experience only we would say the sun travels around the earth but we have been told by those who are able to interpret what they see with a more refined understanding that no the earth instead spins on its axis and revolves around the sun contrary to our immediate experiential perception But we've been told this consistently, frequently, unwaveringly, until we agree, even though we have no confirming experience of it ourselves, It's an understanding we have. So a similar change of belief is required to realize the peace of liberation. Initially, we interpret our experience as belonging to me, as mine, as who I am. That's a wrong interpretation. But we put ourselves in this opportunity to hear the teachings of the Buddha, on anatta, and we hear the right view, which is, no, that's not you. It's not who you are. And it's not yours. Are we supposed to believe our experience or believe the teacher? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of credibility given today or these days to trust your experience. Well, you might want to rethink that. You know, there are those who see more, understand differently, maybe understand more correctly. And so, we listen, we at least listen to the teachings, and if we practice, we may realize confirming understanding. So, I want to show several examples of the wrong view of self in action and just point to the obvious suffering that results from this wrong view and this attachment to it. But also to expose how mindfulness um, reveals that suffering and how vipassana or insight uh, overcomes and uproots that mistaken belief In his discourse to Magandhya, the Buddha said, I have long been tricked, cheated and defrauded by this mind, unlike us. (laughs) For when clinging, I have been clinging just to material form, to perceptions, to feelings, to formations and to consciousness. With my clinging as the condition, this whole mass of suffering has come to be. What the Buddha is acknowledging here is that through clinging to a recognizable pattern of self in his appearance, in his behavior, in his thoughts, in his beliefs, in his feelings, in his roles, in his judgments, in his decisions, in clinging to a recognizable pattern of himself reflected in all of these experiences, suffering has resulted. So let's look at this body and mind from this understanding. The body, the Buddha said, is like a clump of foam. Nevertheless, when we see the body, our own or others, we see a pretty solid form. We see something that looks solid. It looks like someone. It feels like someone, me, and we ourselves are identified with the appearance of our body how it looks. Size, shape, color, texture, all reflect a sense of self. If you don't think so, (laughs) you do, I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, our culture is pretty obsessed with appearance. Maybe all cultures are, but our culture is really obsessed with evaluating or ascribing value to someone based on their appearance whether they fit the socially culturally approved norm or how close they are to it well it's not only appearance it's functioning how your body functions whether you're sick or healthy whether your eyes work your ears work and other things work, or if they don't, our sense of self, it's like we suffer when my body doesn't work right. Because we're identified with this body. We really think this is me, this is mine. And it's not only appearance and functioning, we even have uh, strong attachment to our biometric statistics. How's your cholesterol? <laughs> you know, and blood pressure. Hey guys, how's your PSA? You know, it's like we all, I mean, you know, when you get elevated readings, it's like, oh God, I, I, I'm in trouble. Well, this kind of identification, it, the suffering's pretty obvious, isn't it? When we're identified with the body that's sick it's got wrong statistics wrong size shape color texture increasingly so with aging Um, the suffering is obvious nevertheless we have to maintain we have to do the best we can with what we've got and it is responsible of us to do the best we can but where is good enough transition to obsessive because Good enough is required. And there's a certain level of responsibility and minimal suffering. But as soon as you transition to or cross the line to obsessive, you add a layer of suffering that's, well, excessive, not necessary. How are we going to know that? only from paying attention. When we practice uh, awareness, we come to know the body differently. We come, of course we want to, you know, be kind to the body. We don't want to uh, hurt it or abuse it unnecessarily, and so we can practice loving kindness. We can practice uh, eating uh, moderately and getting enough sleep, and you know, not 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 undertaking uh, torturous ascetic practices that are kind of abusive of the body. So we're not asking you to do that, but just to practice awareness of the body as it really is. What we see is that experientially the body is very different than how we think of it or see it in action. We sit down close your eyes immediately size, shape, color, texture gone. And we're tuned into this inner experience of the body which in time is revealed to be this vast uh, soundboard of sensations and vibrations and pulses and heat, cold. It, there's just tugs and pulls and hot, cold, hard, soft, bu- bu- bubbling, gurgling, stretching pressure. Just like, <laughs> where's foot in all that? <laughs> you know, it's like no foot, no face, no arm. It's just stuff, and who can control what experience arises in the body ever? Can we? Can you? No, I mean we can move the body to get some relief from discomfort, but if you sit still and pay attention, what you notice in the body is not your decision. It's due to impersonal conditions that have nothing to do with you. It's just a package of protoplasm over here doing its thing. You know, that we have somehow jumped in and said, whoa, this is me or I'm in here or something like that. (laughs) Why do we do that? Well, because we have to take care of it but we fuse all of these sensations together into a size shape, identify with it as me, and then obsess about it. But When you get a, a 3D, a three-dimensional mapping of the body, what you see in the Buddhist language are the four elements. The earth element experienced as hardness, softness, tingling, The air element experiences all the forms of vibration and pulsation and tingling in the body. The fire element experiences hot, cold, warm, heat, searing, whatever. And the water element experiences cohesion, heaviness, uh, sometimes tears, uh, or, or moisture. Anything else? Well, that's a pretty unenviable package of stuff and all of it is this evanescent effervescent bubbling cauldron of impersonal conditions we get glimpses of just how automatic this process is and in these glimpses of just just pure awareness, just just seeing it, we begin to let go of our wrong view of size, shape, functioning statistics that we're so attached to. And we see it's just happening. The body is like a clump of foam, the Buddha said, void, hollow, and insubstantial. To see that, we practice mindfulness. Because mindfulness is the solvent that dissolves the glue of the sense of self. To say that the body is impersonal, not me, not mine, means that the physical experiences that we encounter are ungovernable through our intention. We can't control them. It also means that they are conditioned by external stimuli. You know, when the sun comes out, the body gets hot. You know, the truck drives up. The noise starts banging away at you. You know, the body gets agitated. You know, It's not your decision. It happens. Or when we look at a very young newborn, or we look at a very old person who's about to die, and their mind and body don't seem to be going together, you really get a sense of how, here's the mind, here's the body. What, what holds them together? Well, identification. We get identified. Buddha Buddhaghosa, commentarian on the Buddha's teachings, in the Vizuri writes, the characteristic of anatta is not obvious because the concept of a solid entity obscures it when attention is not given to the separate distinct phenomena. However, when the different phenomena are seen separately, the conceptual solid entity is broken up, then the characteristic of impersonality becomes obvious. in my body life. I have had a uh, kind of a chronic uh, abdominal distress much of my life. In college, it was a pack of roll aids a day just to get by. And it's been something ever since. And so over the course of decades, I have consulted with every kind of healer you can imagine, from uh, allopathic, to chiropractic, to homeopathic, to Chinese doctors and Burmese doctors. And having been diagnosed within those traditions of diagnostics uh, and assigned some condition that was treated with dieting, medicine, nerve massage, adjustments, crystal placements, acupuncture, herbs and potions, still suffer. there was a period of time for months when I was practicing in Burma of course Burmese food will make you have intestinal problems anyway <laughs> but, but I had them before Burma <laughs> you know there was a period in practice I was so determined to figure out why I had this condition I made a record of everything I ate how much when I went to the toilet how much and after months I still didn't know anything and I was suffering finally I got the practice er, right-er, right-er. And I realized the suffering is not this condition in the body. It's the condition in the mind. The mind that's so upset with, this is the way it is. When I was able to turn my attention just to observe the actual physical phenomena as it appeared to the mind. Bubbling, pressure, tightness, heat, vibrating, whatever, whatever, whatever. Without trying to interpret it or without trying to explain it. It was just phenomena. It was just impersonal sensations being known, some of which were unpleasant. Without the added story of, oh, poor me. I'm upset. You know, my stomach this, my that. What, a, what disease do I have? What medicine have I got to get? What doctor can I go to? Without all that, it was just a momentary, recurring momentary, <laughs> <laughs> Discomfort. Eventually, the chatter in the mind quieted down to where I can't say I wasn't bothered by it, but I wasn't suffering the way that I was before. There was another time in practice after this initial uh, kind of disidentifying from the body when practice was very uh, smooth, a lot of momentum to practice, a lot of equanimity and the body was as if transparent. It was a period of time where I was a monk and so I was wearing robes. You have a lower robe like a, a skirt and an upper robe which is like a wrapped up blanket. So often during this time I would be walking in the monastery going from my room to the meditation hall or meditation hall to see my teacher or whatever. And I would have this distinct, clear feeling of being naked. And I'd have to look at myself to make sure I had my robes on and and see, okay, I have my robes on. And I felt naked, I felt transparent, I felt lighter and lighter than dust, you know, less substantial than just a dust ball. So I was telling my teacher um, what it what it feels like, and he said, Oh, this is the feeling, this is how a baby experiences their body before, just after they come out of the womb, before they get identified with it. Body, but not identified with it. It's just dust dust modes in the body. So it's possible to to really come to know the body as not who you are not yours not mine and not a source of suffering well the body has its challenges the mind also Buddha was really skillful he said consciousness or the knowing mind is like a magician's illusion it creates all kinds of appearances which we take to be real and then relate to the mind has many uh, capacities many attributes many um, possibilities it is the mind that feels pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It is the mind that perceives that has an understanding when it sees something, anything. It has an understanding often based on memory of what is seen, what is heard, what is felt, what is thought. And it is the mind that makes decisions or chooses intentions to act on. So with all of these, and it's the mind that thinks, but with all of these capacities, the thinking, the knowing, the feeling, the deciding, the recognizing, the memory that feels so personal, when we get identified with the mind, we make all those activities ours we think they're ours it is me who feels hot cold pleasant unpleasant it is me who makes the decisions that control my life it is me who recognizes who who ascribes the meaning to everything that's seen felt heard tasted thought we know this leads to a tremendous amount of suffering. We are telling ourselves stories about ourselves constantly. Did you see a story about yourself in the mind today? I mean, did you see anything else? Anything but a story about yourself in the mind? Was there any suffering there? I mean, it's so obvious, it's like we suffer with the stories that we tell ourselves. Not only the stories we tell ourselves, the stories that the mind seems to tell us. I was mentioning to someone, you know, while we always having an interview, if someone just walks down the, the hall, the, the walkway out there, you don't need more than a split-second glimpse of them to have a perception about them. to Have some understand, some you believe, some understanding of who they are, what they're thinking, where they're going, what, you think you know something about them <laughs> and if you don't recognize well this is just a, a fleeting perception, comes due to condition, it's natural functioning of the mind, it really has nothing to do with you, it's not yours, but if you pick it up, if you don't recognize it as an impersonal activity of mind, you'll pick it up massage it to get a little more information, a little more ideas, uh, ascribe a little meaning to it, and suddenly you've got yourself a problem. (laughs) In our personal relationships, the Buddha said, it is easy to see the faults of others, but hard to see one's own. If one focuses on others' faults and constantly takes offense, one's own toxins flourish and one is far from their destruction. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy or haters one to another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly-directed mind. Do not consider the faults of others or what they have or haven't done. Consider, rather, what you yourself have or haven't done. And when asked, Why is it that beings live hating, out of harmony, hostile to each other, with enmity, and without peace between them? The Buddha said, it is due to the bonds of envy and stinginess. Envy. Envy is that coveting, or it's a painful, resentful awareness of an advantage that someone else enjoys over you. It's an urgent, even a malicious desire to see another dispossessed of something. And it's accompanied with distrust, suspicion, and anger. So the Buddha said, the hostility among beings is due to the bonds of envy and stinginess, which arise due to liking and disliking, which arise from desire which arises from thinking, which arises from elaborated perceptions and notions. You have a difficult relationship in your life. An unobserved, impersonal perception got elaborated. That's what happened. You have a difficult relationship in life. A perception of that person A perception of the relationship a perception of yourself unnoted was elaborated unconsciously into a problem your personal suffering think about that we have an infinite number of impersonal perceptions arise in the mind every day judgments about people observations about people about ourselves About others and we take them to be real we take them to be accurate we take them to be even beliefs without giving them a second thought and if we don't see them you know what we see comes out of our mouth and read some blogs yeah you don't have to read blogs I mean (laughs) you know When I read blogs now, I realize this is a stream of elaborated, unobserved perceptions. It's just opinions, views and opinions just streaming out. Why should... I mean, I have a hard enough time with my own. Why should I... Why should I kind of like uh, ingest or inject... Someone else's, which are equally, you know, random, invalid, you know, untested, just views and opinions. The suffering is immense. We know. You know, we, we have difficult relationships because we ascribe meaning and value to meaningless, valueless things. Just random perceptions. The Buddha said, perceptions are like a shimmering mirage. Feelings are like a bubble in a stream. Intentions have no center, no core. They're like a banana trunk, banana tree trunk. No core. And yet, when we kind of conglomerate or aggregate all of these activities of mind, it feels like It's who I am. Mindfulness exposes this because continuous attention looks at this tapestry of self and begins to untie it thread by thread you know I've used this image before you walk into a museum on the firewall there's a tapestry you know 20 feet by 30 feet a picture of two women sitting at a table over a bowl of fruit having a conversation it's like wow wow so you walk across the room you know the, the, the entryway and you get close to the tapestry and as you get closer you lose the perspective of the whole picture and all you see is the bowl of fruit it's like wow that looks like a fruit you'd like to reach right out there and grab one of those apples or whatever and then when the docent isn't looking you get really close and you see there's no fruit there. <laughs> All this is is a bunch of threads tied together, different colors, different textures. It's just, it's just threads. We've created this whole story out of pixels of color. We've created this whole sense of ourselves out of pixels of random phenomena. A sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, a feeling, a perception, a misperception, a belief, an opinion, an intention that we chose to follow, an intention that we chose not to follow, and attachment to it all. Here I am. I believe this is me. The stories, the thoughts, the feelings that come up in our mind, we identify with because we don't see clearly that they are arising due to conditions, causes and conditions outside of our control. There's nothing inherently me about it. Mindfulness can see that. Mindfulness just sees. If you sit still and and, and pay attention, you'll see. It just unravels. The sense of self just unravels into a long sequence of impersonal, colorful stories. Myself is just a thought-constructed concept convenient at times, a burden at others. We create a narrator to tell our story to ourselves mostly. Some of you have mentioned noticing the narrator in the mind. Often appears as the one who's rehearsing the interview (laughs) or how you're going to tell somebody about your experience. You're not not really going to tell anybody. You're telling yourself because it's this self that needs to integrate what's happening to me or thinks it does. Imagine if you could live life and not tell yourself the story of it. You'd be new. You'd be a newborn every moment. Just right there. Just right there for it. No memory to filter the perception of the present moment we just see things as they are well that's the direction that mindfulness is taking us not that we have no memory but that we see memory perception understanding attributing values attributing meaning for what it is it's just an activity of mind deep insight or i should say The continuity of mindfulness reveals the anatta characteristic. It sees that all of this mental activity is aggregated feelings, thoughts, perceptions, values, memories, etc. And within it there is no unchanging thing. There is no enduring being. If you take away all of the changeability, there's nothing unchanging in there. In addition, it's not under our control. If it was, we'd always have pleasant thoughts, we'd never have difficult emotions, we'd always choose, you know, uh, beautiful feelings, we'd always have accurate perceptions but it's not under our control it's only when we develop the mindfulness the continuity of awareness to see deeply into the structure oh this is the structure of the self that we begin to get that kind of knowledge that kind of handle on the relative sense of self and the story that we tell ourselves One story that is a spiritual story, current in the world today, is that we're all one. We're all one. It's easy to see. You you look at that picture of Earth from outer space and you see there's Earth, one Earth. Everything that's on it is just part of this one thing. Well, it's true. It's true. There's one earth, there's one humanity, everything that's happening affects everything else that's happening. This view is apparent in practice when mindfulness dissolves the boundaries between inner and outer, us and other. And this happens, even even on a retreat of nine days you can really merge with this sense of being connected with everyone everything here when the mind is collected meaning the mindfulness is steady it has the capacity to unify disparate things so, even when you're walking on the, on the asphalt pavement out there, or you're walking on the deck, the wooden deck out there, there is no pattern to those rocks in that asphalt. And yet, when the mind is unified, really collected, and it's gazing at the pavement, it can see a pattern. The mind will weave that random matrix of rocks, into a coherent pattern, just like the mind will weave a random pattern of people, relationships, things into a unified whole and then identify with it. The weaving of the whole, not the problem, it's the identification with it. We, meaning me, I, we are all one. It's the identification that causes the suffering. The unification of mind will bring about that perception. But we need to see it for what it is. The Buddha said of this kind of perception. They perceive all as all, all as one. Having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all. They conceive themselves in all. They conceive themselves as coming from all. They conceive all to be theirs. They delight in all. And why is that? Because they have not fully understood it. It is the identification with the story we're telling ourselves about ourselves that causes the suffering. Several years ago now, I used to say a few years ago. Now it's several years ago. I was scheduled to fly from San Francisco to Boston in the morning to get to a course. And being a frequent traveler, I'm a frequent flyer and of, of, of one of those upper levels, you know, premier, premier executive, 1K. And uh, <coughs> shortly before I was to fly, I realized I'm a day late. I got to get there a day earlier. So I wanted to, I called the airline and said, I need to get to Boston before my flight. Are there any empty seats that I can fly standby? This is back when you could still get a standby seat. And they said, oh yeah, plenty of seats on the red eye going to Boston tonight. I said, great, I'll be there. Drove to the airport, got a ride to the airport, went to the counter, pandemonium at the United counter for the flight going from San Francisco to Boston. So I got to the desk, and I said, what, what, what's going on? I, I want to fly standby on to, to Boston. And they said, not possible. We canceled our last flight to Boston. All of those people are trying to get on this flight. Not a chance. And I said, oh, I, I got to get, get to Boston. Uh, uh, I want to try to fly standby. I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> Premier. <laughs> Premier executive? They said, "Well, here's your standby card. You can go up to the gate, but you know we're sure we're overbooked." So I ran up to the gate, went to the counter up there, and said, I- "I'm one of those. I, I want to fly standby." And they said, "Oh, yeah. There's there's three of you here." And I said, "Yeah, but I'm a frequent flyer, <laughs> premier, <laughs> executive, frequent flyer." I said, "Well, just stand over there and wait. After the plane is loaded, if there's any empty seats, we'll see if we can get you in." So they got everybody boarding the plane. And even while they were still getting on, they said to the three of us who were flying standby, uh, come on, come with us down to the, down the gangplank there to, to the door, and we'll see. And I said, well, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> <laughs> so they got to the plane, and they're setting everybody down. We want to get off on time, so please sit down. And they set everybody down, and they said, one seat empty way up back. And I said, yeah, I'm a frequent fly." <laughs> so they said, OK, OK, OK. So they put me in the, 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 the seat. And I went way up back, sitting between these two guys, like the size of that Tongan that Kamala was talking about last <laughs> night. You know, no space. But I was on the plane. I was going to get there in time. So I was sitting down, trying to get comfortable in this seat, happy to be there. And they looked around. They found another seat. So the second frequent flyer, or the second standby flyer, got assigned a seat. They close the door. They do a final destination check. This plane is going to Boston. If you're not scheduled to go to Boston, let us know, because we're pushing out. Somebody in first class rings the bell and says, hey, I'm not going to Boston. <laughs> yeah. so, they, so they open the door. And the guy from first class walks out and they say to the other, <laughs> standby flyer, come on in. You can sit here. <laughs> I reach up and ring my bell. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm flying standby, and I'm a frequent flyer. You know, shouldn't you treat your frequent flyer? Shouldn't I get that first class seat? They said, you got a seat? We're taking off on time sit down and be satisfied oh I was frothing I was upset I would I was not happy pushed off for the first half hour of the flight I was composing my letter I was going to write to United, United Airlines why they're treating me so badly and I'm gonna turn into a other f- Airlines frequent flyer and after about a half hour I realized god I'm really miserable you know, and I've got another five and a half hours before I get to Boston in the middle of the night. If I don't get a handle on this, there's some suffering. So I said, you know what, I'm on the plane, I'm going to get there, fine, chill, okay, let it go, fine, no problem. Got to Boston, get off the plane, still a freaking flyer, you know. And, you know got there no problem and it was fine it was okay what happened well when you let go of the story you're telling yourself about your suffering the only thing that changes you stop suffering you're still frequent flyer you're still (laughs) (laughs) who you always thought you were you know you let go of this identity when you see that it's just constructed by thought it's so powerful to have the awareness of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves they're just stories Nobody is forcing that story on you. It's you yourself that is holding on to that story. So ask yourself, what story of yourself have you been telling yourself today that's causing you suffering? It's just a story, repeated endlessly. Unconsciously, over and over and over again. It's just a story. Can you see it as just a story? You don't have to be identified with it. You don't have to own it. You don't have to claim it. It's just a thought, a misperception. Even it runs through the mind again and again and again, and we grab onto it again and again and again, and we suffer. Awareness gives you the opportunity to let go. Without that awareness, no choice. You will buy it. You will buy that story. You will identify with that story. If we do that consistently with every story that comes up in the mind about ourselves. we're free. Free. Nobody can stop you from being free. Only you yourself. Only awareness that sees it and lets go. Nobody can free you from your stories. You can't change. The other person in the relationship, they can change. You still got a story. You still got the identification. They may be perfect. <laughs> you still have a story. You know, nothing worse than to be married to a saint. You know? <laughs> I mean it's it's your story. It's not out there, it's not them. It's your sense, your perception of yourself. This is This is the liberation that the insight into anatta offers. And it comes from just paying attention to the identifications with the body, with the mind, with the mental functions, mental activity, seeing and letting go, seeing and letting go, seeing and letting go. Seeing thus, With proper wisdom, the Buddha said, he or she becomes disenchanted with form, feelings, perceptions, intentions, and thoughts. Being disenchanted, he or she becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his or her mind is liberated. And when it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. The way to stop this inner monologue is to use exactly the same method used to teach us to talk to ourselves. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda. We were taught compulsively and unwaveringly. And this is the way we must stop it, compulsively and unwaveringly. (laughs) Once inner silence is attained, everything is possible. So let's just sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Seeing thus with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted. Being disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, one's mind is liberated, and when it is liberated, the knowledge comes that it is liberated.